0: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 354, Parlement à Saint-Maud. So we are gathered here today to talk about the 1625 Parliament. But before everyone got to go to the year's greatest social extravaganza, there was another event to get out of the way, while Charles waited for the writs to be sent and the statutory 40 days to pass before Parliament could convene, namely to get himself crowned, anointed and blessed. A ceremony much delayed by plague, and actually he never did carry out the traditional procession through London, worried that such exposure to the people of London and their assembled diseases might mean the event would eventually terminate at somewhere more pearly than the Abbey at Westminster. Now look, there are a couple of wrinkles about Charles's coronation on the 2nd of February 1626 that I should bring to your attention. Firstly, you would obviously expect the Queen to be crowned to boot. Silly not to, but we are still in the kind of adolescent phase of Henrietta Maria's tour of life duty. So, she tried to get one of her Catholic confessors to officiate at the coronation, like that was ever going to happen. And when she was turned down... She then refused to be in any way involved in a ceremony conducted under the Protestant rite. Not only would she never be crowned herself at all, she refused to even attend Charles's coronation behind a screened-off area that had been prepared for her, thoroughly dressed with anti-Protestant spray to make sure she wasn't infected. Charles was deeply offended by the affair and the frosty air of February thickened between the young people frostily. The other notable things were, firstly, that the prelate officiating was not the one who had originally been planned to do so, because that had been the Lord, Keeper and Bishop of Lincoln, John Williams, and his face no longer fitted around court. Charles's choice as a replacement sent yet another shiver through the spines of Calvinists everywhere. It was one William Lord, already noted for his Arminian views. And then, also, there was the text of the coronation oath. For the most part, it was pretty standard. It did not, in fact, include the phrase subject his people to abject tyranny and civil war, but to preserve the laws and customs of England as per normal. But there was a slight addition about bishops. Unusually, he now swore to be a protector and defender of the bishops and the churches under their government. Now, that's a significant change, especially in the light of what we know about the odd extremity of Charles's views about the importance of bishops, that we heard about last time, of the divinity of bishops, and Charles's view that they were absolutely central to the very legitimacy of the Church of England. Charles and Buckingham would show that to an extent they'd realised that they'd managed the 1624 Parliament rather poorly and would try to deal with that and do it better. But the most important point, the one to be written on the mountain in words of fire, was that the need to manage parliament for supply of subsidies was critically affected by the struggle for supremacy between Calvinist and Arminian. This was because the House of Commons was dominated by lay Calvinists. So, Charles could not follow his heart towards policies to the liking of Arminians. He still had to keep the parliamentary firebrands on his side. I mean, Charles is already on a tightrope here pity the poor man. This is something the Nolan sisters really ought to have mentioned in that song where their messy relative dreamed of when there'd be a king and focused on people bowing low and carriages to take them everywhere and all that sort of thing. In the interest of historical accuracy, the Nolans should really have pointed out to their relative that the people would also be honouring you constantly with incompatible demands and that being king could lead to decapitation. Much as I would hate to shatter the dreams of small children in their Nolan's songs. Anyway, moving away from the Nolan sisters, Charles still had to keep the French happy with regards to his new bride and the marriage contract, and their supposed collaboration against the Habsburgs, for which purpose he had suspended the recusancy laws to keep their French Catholic hearts warm. Despite having done that, now he had to run to the other side of the boat and throw the Calvinist Parliament a bone showing how, of course, he wasn't going soft on the papist enemy, perished the very thought. So he issued a proclamation before the Parliament, banishing seminary priests from the country, and disarming recusants. This was his attempt to walk the thin line. You might note, just FYI, that it might have occurred to Charles that a pretty substantial set of shackles would be removed from his wrists should he no longer have to call Parliament and do what they say. You know, in the unlikely event that should ever happen. Nudge, nudge, wink, and if you will, wink. So, we've started then with a bit of tightrope walking already before Parliament's even started. Suspension of recusancy fines to the left, a bone thrown to the Calvinists in the proclamations against seminary priests to the right. Expectations for the Parliament were sky-high, Around this time, two Venetian envoys arrived in London and were able to sample the atmosphere in the capital as Parliament began to meet. It alarmed them, recording that they encountered an undesirable agitation which is widespread and a feeling of resentment which seems incredible. There was a sense of panic and impending disaster in the wake of the Cadiz fiasco. The common opinion is that the Spanish force is about to invade this kingdom. And at the same time, feeling was running high also against the French. As it does, you know how it is. We love them nonetheless, but feelings can run high. But our envoys observed that Buckingham never lost an opportunity for denouncing Louis' government. And to give Buckingham his due, the Venetian envoys empathised with the lad, agreeing that The court of France is a rose with many thorns. One must be careful to pluck what is good and always fear being hurt by them. Meanwhile, there was some dismay among Charles's allies that he'd closed the 1625 Parliament so very unsatisfactorily. They needed the money promised to the anti habsburg League and to Christian of Denmark specifically for his army. Robert Anstruther... Charles's ambassador in Copenhagen was lectured by the Danish court on running a successful parliament, advised to treat it as a marriage between man and wife, both in honour and profit, aimed at preventing of any mistakes to understand truly one another. Right you are Christian, sir. Man and woman, check. Truly understanding. On it. Right away, sir. Charles next went through the time-honoured royal process that he'd failed to go through last time of trying to get a parliament peopled with the MPs he deserved by nobbling the people he felt no one deserved. These were traditionally called ringleaders. He did this by promoting them, a pretty classic way of getting rid of the incompetent, specifically by making them sheriff for a year, which sounds like a promotion, Until he realised that Sheriff was no longer the powerful, nice little money earner it used to be back when we were in the Middle Ages, or carried any real power. It was, in fact, a bit of a bottom buster. So, Edward Cook, Robert Phillips, Francis Seymour were all pricked out of Parliament in this way as they had it. Another was Thomas Wentworth, rightly identified at this point in his life as an opponent of Charles, despite his later relationship with the king and indeed his fate as parliament opened though Richelieu's temporary pro-huguenot swerve resulted in a peace being declared between king louis and the huguenots this was very confusing for charles and the buck it completely took the wind out of the sails of government policy in an extended luff that policy having been to raise money for a french campaign the absence of such policy had parliament wandering up on its own channels for the first few weeks, which was no more useful to the king than it had been last time. Once again, Charles failed to set an agenda and felt unable to ask for his real purpose, a war chest. Nonetheless, he tried to make it clear that what was required of this parliament was the right sort of attitude and behaviour, and with that, all would be well. The man selected to deliver this message is highly significant, it was William Lord, that man again. Lord reminded Parliament in his opening sermon that the King's power was God's ordinance and that the subject's duty was therefore to hang on, let me choose the right word, oh yeah, got it, do what they were told. He took a swipe at Presbyterians along the way. A parity they would have. No bishop, no governor. And they, whoever they be, that would overthrow bishops will not spare if they get the power to have a pluck at the throne of David. Lord, like James, like Charles, was increasingly using an equation that radical Calvinist equal rebel. It was a dangerous equation. Now, I might once more sadly do a little shimmy And talk a bit about the Parliament we are seeing in principle before we talk about the actualité, because we have not talked much about that for a few centuries. Anyway, I thought it might be worth just mentioning a couple of things about parliamentary procedure, apropos of nothing, just to add a bit of colour to the proceedings. First thing. Inflation over the last 100 years had inflated the electorate very considerably. It's now thought that between 27 and 40% of adult males had the vote, which is more than a hill of beans, you have to say. The bean count being the traditional measure of relevance here, obviously. Second fact, we have been used, or at least I have mentioned it before, if you happen to be checking in at this point, that elections might be better described as a selection process. The great men getting together and deciding which person was going to go this time. But the times, in the words of Bob, were a-changing. By 1626, about 20% of elections were now contested, which probably just passes the Bean test. Generally, everyone hated a contested election, so demeaning for the gentry to have to go through it. Except the electorate, of course, who often got to be bribed with a hoolie as a result. Lastly, in this utterly random list, there were a few offices and wrinkles which had grown up, particularly the Speaker of the House. The Speaker of the House, on this occasion, was one Hennage Finch, whose words we had occasion to hear last week, giving the view that the law limited the rights of the king. Hennage was a judge, and despite that quote, actually, it was something of a royal toady. The world of the 17th, and indeed before and after, sadly, required a lot of toadying to make it in public life. It is one of the great boons of the model world, it seems to me, much less toadying required. Not saying there aren't occasions when it's not used even now. We've all seen a bit of toadying going on from time to time. In the 17th century, though, it was part of the fabric that due deference was given to the great men of society and power. People believed in hierarchy. The office which Hennage held for this parliament as Speaker of the House originated with Peter de la Mer, something of a hero and champion of the people back in Edward III's time, if you remember. It had been an auspicious start, but things had rather changed and the role of the Speaker of the house is an odd, hybrid sort of role at this time. Everyone in Jacobean England says that the Speaker is the mouthpiece of the Commons, so that must be true, mustn't it? The question is, though, who was pulling the strings on the back of the Speaker? because although there is a wafer thin veil of respectability about the process, so the Speaker is elected by the MPs, it was made pretty clear by the monarch who the MPs were going to vote for. When the Speaker is elected, they then get to make a little speech, a speech which is notable only for just how outrageously they could praise the monarch. The dual nature of the role was a little tricky, not least for the Speaker. I mean, under Tudor parliaments, Where contention is not really much in evidence and consensus is a thing, it isn't much of an issue. But with parliaments under the Stuarts, borrowing from both Messrs Argy and Bargy, it's much trickier. There are sides. Whose side is the Speaker on? And the Speaker does have some significant power through control of procedure, so it does matter. He decides at what point a vote is taken and debate closed down. He makes sure MPs conform to the rules of debating. Proceedings in Parliament can't wait until the Speaker is there. Those powers can be manipulated by a clever manager. So, one wizard wheeze that Charles uses is to keep the Speaker talking in his morning consultation with him, because the Speaker has to have a consultation with the King every morning. And that means that Charles could curtail debate on subjects he doesn't think Parliament should be debating as in the situation where gets the Speaker and takes up all his time by saying, Oh, before you rush back, you must have a look at my latest collection of East Hungarian basket weaving. Oh dear, has Parliament gone home? Oh dear, what a shame. Never mind. The Speaker began to be treated, therefore, with some contempt by the Commons. Firstly, the Speaker was anyway at the best of the time seen as a mouthpiece, not a leader. So you wouldn't have been appointing your brightest and best, he's just a gopher. Secondly, since the Speaker is to a degree managed and controlled, or at least heavily influenced the agenda of the House, the influence of the monarch and the Privy Council began to matter. Members of the Privy Council in the House, for example, all tended to seat themselves around the Speaker so that they could, you know, advise and guide. So MPs invented things to help them get round the Speaker. The committee of the whole House set up by Edwin Sands in 1606 ended up doing that, allowing MPs to get together and decide what they wanted to talk about without being festooned with Privy Council members or having their debates closed down at awkward moments by the Speaker when it got a little fruity. I'm sorry, I have a couple more things super quickly. I saw a contention some time ago that parliaments anyway were in the pockets of the great men and in the pockets of the king, And that is something to bear in mind. But by the times of the Stuarts, it is much less of a factor, but it is still a factor. So the majority of members of Parliament, it should be noted, were in some way royal officials. From JPs, justices of the peace, in the provinces, to actually paid office holders. And if you held a paid position in particular, that could well affect how you voted. The power of patronage is an incredibly important tool of the crown. It's a vast jellyfish floating silently in the waters of politics, the sort of thing we'd see as corruption these days, and often unspoken, but frequently spoken. If you support me, I'll see you right with a nice little money earner or privilege. On the other hand, that support is by no means a gimme. Many provincial office holders demonstrably voted against the king's desires. It's also worth noting that in Charles's parliaments of 1626 and 1628, the number of MPs without any office at all rose sharply. So about 120 of a parliament of around about 490 had no office at all. That's about a quarter of the house. More straightforwardly, there were members of the royal household in the Commons and the King could expect some loyalty from them, surely. And in times medieval, the numbers could be very significant. But by Charles's day, again, it's much less so. In 1626 and 1628, it's probably only about 24 members of parliament who were part of the royal household. And absolutely, finally, there's the thing about great men. Now, this might well have been very significant in times of the regional medieval satraps, but it was much less relevant now. In 1626, the peers with the greatest number of MP clients in their pocket were Buckingham with about 27 and the Earl of Pembroke with about 16. Now that gave them influence, but was a very long way indeed from being decisive as Buckingham had already discovered. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices Oakley-dokley then, it's the 10th of February, 1626, and ever aware of Lord's demands that the MPs behave properly and concentrate on thinking not what the king could do for them, but what they could do for the king, namely enhance him in his glorious divine-appointed majesty and stop causing trouble. Anyway, in response, here is MP John Elliot's first go at this talking about the disaster at Cardiz. Is the reputation and glory of our nation of a small value? Are the walls and bulwarks of our kingdom of no esteem? Were the numberless lives of our lost men not to be regarded? Our honour is ruined, our ships are sunk, our men perished, not by the sword, not by an enemy, not by chance, but by those... We trust. Hmm, so that's not in Charles and Lord's rule book. then. He didn't appear to be listening. Elliot did not name names, but everyone knew about whom he was talking. The Duke of Buckingham was in Elliot's oratorial crosshairs, and those hairs were indeed cross. Cardis had been a bona fide, honest-to-goodness, 24-carat no-poo disaster, and who better take responsibility for that than the Lord Admiral, who was the said Duke of Buckingham. Part of the problem is the vacuum that existed in the place of a government agenda. I am told that nature abhors a vacuum, and if so, Elliot was the natural force that rushed to fill it. And so started 18 fractious weeks. Elliot demanded inquiries into Buckingham's seizure of a French merchant vessel, but to begin with, his invective was not actually that well received by Parliament. But factional infighting in the Lords, led by Pembroke, meant there was some support there. Meanwhile, thought to the Commons set up one of those committees to look at grievances, which would no doubt have had Charles rolling his eyes in frustration. It was attractively named the Committee for Evils, Causes and Remedies. Everyone should have an hour set aside in their day, it seems to me, to consider evils, causes and remedies, along with a custard cream and a nice cup of tea. Meanwhile, one John Pym a gentleman from an old Somerset family and MP for Colne in Wiltshire, made himself head of a committee of religion, eager to nail that Arminian preacher Richard Montague that Charles had defended from prosecution at the last parliament. Now, John Pym had already crossed the royal firmament, being briefly arrested by James after the 1621 parliament. He's also a good example of the rule that someone in receipt of royal patronage could perfectly well cut up rough against their king. Pym earned his daily bread as a receiver of crown lands, responsible basically for collecting royal rents. On the 7th of March, finally, a royal spokesman got the ball of a government agenda rolling and asked the Commons to consider subsidies on the basis of money required to support the Danes in their entry onto the Protestant side in the Thirty Years' War in this great bid to get the Palatinate back. Through this, Buckingham and Charles were able to ally with the patriotic faction led by Pembroke and the Commons responded favourably and started looking at how much. So that's a good start. Better if it had happened a month ago, but, you know, better late than never. But while that was going on, trouble started again elsewhere. One Dr Turner got onto his hind legs and had a right old go at Buckingham. And he was naming names this time, listing all sorts of evils and causes. The Duke had allowed England to lose control of the Narrow Seas. He had weakened the Crown's finances through excessive gifts to himself and his kindred, accepted more offices than he could remember, let alone perform, had sold honours, harboured recusants and was responsible for the failure of cadres, which is quite a list, it must be said, and did have a large kernel of truth. So, when the Commons presented their plan for a series of subsidies, very helpfully, it must be said, to the tune of probably 300,000 quid, it came with a kicker, presented by John Eliot. It was the sort of kicker that multiple kings, since the time of Edward I, had faced. Eliot actually referenced Henry III and Richard II's reigns. That supply of this 300,000 knicker would be dependent on resolving their grievances first. So, they said that although they loved his match more than life itself, any grant could only be made so sorry after then had an answer to the evils, causes and remedies. Well, this was doing in the royal bonds. As far as he was concerned, he'd been more than reasonable and made major concessions to MPs, such as his proclamations against Jesuits and seminary priests, He was giving them the war they'd asked for as Protestants, now with added Danishness. And here they were, refusing him to give the wherewithal to carry out those things. So he warned them off Buckingham. Buckingham, he said, was only following orders, his orders, Charles's orders. Now by doing so, Charles puts his pretty slippered feet on the first road to a position which will make it harder and harder for the old formula to save face and avoid armed confrontation. The evil counsellor's card, used throughout English history to dump unpopular ministers to pretend that the king wasn't responsible for the nasty things that had happened. But Charles keeps insisting on making it personal, probably for two reasons. He's honest about accepting responsibility, which is a nice personal attribute, I think you can agree. But also he believes that by asserting his royal status, he can simply make the resentment and the problems go away. He can command them to disappear, when instead the resentment simply remains and festers and people begin to ask if royal authority is being used reasonably. Charles makes it personal in other ways, which will have an impact on later events. Here's what he says to Buckingham. Let them do what they list, You shall not go to the Tower. It is not you they aim at, but it is me upon whom they make inquisition. So again, he's making this personal. And for Charles, loyalty was a big thing. He struggles with the idea that you can disagree with your boss about a matter of policy and yet still be loyal. The Commons ignored the warnings and just carried on digging away at Buckingham's ins and outs. Actually, Buckingham would remain pretty relaxed about this whole process throughout it, confident he could defend himself in any bust-up. And the Secretary of State, John Cook, who had worked under Buckingham to reform the Navy, was resolutely supportive about Buckingham's work there. But Charles got increasingly irascible, and on the 29th of March he cracked and ordered the representatives of the House to come in for what, with hindsight, looks like a highly significant meeting. Charles started the meeting by thanking the House of Lords for their efforts and work at Parliament and then by lambasting the Commons for their unparliamentary proceedings. Then he handed over to his mouthpiece Baron Coventry who laid things out, essentially, that their king was a good egg who believed completely in the need to be a good egg to his people and talk to them and address their grievances. Can you hear a butt coming? Here's the butt, and it's a big butt, and I tell no lie. He told them that Charles believed that they, the MPs, were also good eggs, but they were being led astray by the corrupt humours of some particular persons. He made it clear that he didn't think the Commons really believed in their pursuit of Buckingham. How could they? It was just a blind, a pretense that their real aim was to wound the honour and government of his majesty and his late blessed father. Also, they were guilty of a shocking lack of trust. He'd promised he'd address their grievances in his own good time, and that should be enough for them. Basically, it was the king's responsibility, and they should mark this well, to maintain the difference between counselling and controlling between liberty and abuse of liberty. Essentially, MPs could advise if they wished, but the decision-making was what kings did, not Parliament, and they must put up with whatever he decided to do. When Coventry had finished speaking, Charles had one more thing to say, and it was pretty menacing. Remember, Parliaments are altogether in my power for their calling sitting and dissolution. Therefore, as I find the fruits of them good or evil, they are to continue or not to be. There is an important point to make here, which is difficult to remember because we spend so much time talking parliaments and parliament now, these days, is where resides the sovereignty and executive of the people. To Charles, sovereignty lay with him and policy was provided by his courtiers and court, and government by his privy councillors and he himself. Parliament was just an occasional body, there to provide money, and, if the king graciously permitted, to air their grievances, and then go home. He had no doubt who was wearing the doublet and pantaloons, and it wasn't some oik from the provinces. Well, the Commons thought carefully about all of this and tugged at their goatees and decided not to take this verbal spanking lying down. They resolved to suspend every other bit of business until they had put together a comprehensive remonstrance, a formal statement of complaint, responding to the charges of unparliamentary behaviour and laying out why they thought Buckingham not to be a good or even a curate, but an out-and-out bad egg. Now, you might have thought that would be the end of it. Toast, dissolution adieu. But Charles allowed Parliament to continue and even tried to emol it at this point. John Pym's Committee of Religion produced a series of complaints about Richard Montague and instead of spitting feathers and dismissing them, Charles promised to send the statement to ask a convocation to review and consider Montague's work in the light of the theology of the Church of England. Buckingham's confidence that the accusations against him had not a leg to stand on persuaded Charles to let Parliament continue also. You might ask why Charles was not more trigger-happy given what he'd just said, and the answer lay partly in his need for those blessed subsidies. But the other may well have lain in another more personal direction, which really would blow up in his face. He wanted the House of Lords to hang out to dry one John Digby, Earl of Bristol, And in order for that to happen, of course, he needed the House of Lords to stay. Now, you might remember Bristol as the ambassador to Spain when a couple of dodgy-looking blokes with falses turned up one night in Madrid and started bidding for the hand of the Infanta. Well, the Earl of Bristol did not befriend himself to Charles and the Buck at that time. He rather believed that maybe Charles was going to convert to Catholicism, which accusation offended the prince, who had no such intention at all. Bristol was then foolish enough to let slip how much the court of Philip IV hated Buckingham. He was then recalled from Spain and Charles invited him to confess to his errors. Bristol refused to do any such thing. As soon as Charles had the chance in 1625, Bristol was removed from the Privy Council and told to stay away from Parliament and his coronation. Squareface in a round hole. Bristol, though, was a fighter. He insisted on being tried by his peers rather than being secretly banished from court and Charles was forced to give away to allow him to attend the 1626 Parliament. Charles had not given up though. He now wanted the House of Lords to condemn Bristol and therefore needed Parliament to continue until that business was done. However, after May 1626 that would change because Bristol fought back with a series of accusations against Buckingham, including one probably potty one that he'd poisoned James. While Buckingham did insist on treating James with his own remedies, it's very hard to imagine it was in his interests to poison the king. The Lords, anyway, decided that both the King's and Bristol's claims should be heard together. Suddenly, prolonging Parliament was a little less attractive to Charles. The King's claims appeared to be in the dock too, and that is not the way Charles had envisaged things going. Charles tried a new tack to turn up the heat and make the commons less intransigent. He turned to one of his favourite courtiers, one Dudley Carleton, Viscount Dorchester. Dudley was a foreign diplomat and specialist. He'd travelled to Madrid, been ambassador in the Venetian Republic and the United Provinces. He was also an art collector, something that would endear him to Charles, whose art collection would be one of his most positive legacies. Charles liked Carlton and his writing ability. He once said of him that he ever brought me my own sense in my own words. So, Carlton was sent to the Commons to make the case for getting on with voting their subsidies and not warbling on about Buckingham and those grievances. Carlton offered the Commons a warning. He painted a dire picture of the politics that he had seen abroad in his travels and warned Parliament that they were headed that way if they carried on as they were with all this fractiousness. In all Christian kingdoms you know what parliaments were in use anciently until monarchs began to know their own strength and seeing the turbulent spirit of their parliaments, at length they, by little and little, began to stand upon their prerogatives and at last overthrew the parliaments throughout Christendom, except... Only here with us. So, basic messages. Firstly, stop pushing or you'll be closed down like over there in La France. And if Charles closes you down, Parliament, it'll be your fault for being turbulent, not his. And there was yet a further sting in the tale. Move not his majesty with trenching upon his prerogatives. Lest you bring him out of love with Parliament's. He hath told you that if there is no correspondency between him and you, he should be enforced to use new councils. Now, what did new councils mean? Well, the message there was that the king was looking at other ways of running this joint without Parliament. And indeed, there is other evidence that by May 1626, Charles was indeed considering ruling without Parliament. He had set up a commission to consider other ways of raising money other than Parliament. And his need was again desperate, let's not forget that. 3,600 men were needed to replace the troops provided to Christian of Denmark in his war against the Habsburgs as part of the League. Buckingham's coach had just been mobbed by a crowd of 150 sailors who had not been paid. Things were dire. On the 10th of May, the Commons presented their petition to the Lords for the prosecution of Buckingham. There were 12 articles, presented variously by John Elliot, Dudley Diggs and John Pym. Charles intervened at this point and told the Lords that any attack on any of their members was an attack on himself and Elliot and Diggs were hauled away immediately and thrown into prison. In response, the Lords delayed a pronouncement on Buckingham, which was effectively a victory for him and Charles. But they also claimed that Diggs and Elliot had done nothing to warrant imprisonment and Charles felt obliged to release them. None of this, of course, helped build any sense of collaboration. And by June, the most moderate of Charles's privy councillors were losing any hope of reaching an accommodation with the Commons. Here's Lord Conway of the Patriot Group. Spoken with three or four of the Parliament, the wisest of my acquaintance, and I find so little to build any hope upon, as if I did not defy despair it would take up every corner in me. I cannot see any help than that which they used to say in plague times, every man for himself, Lord have mercy upon us. When the Lords agreed with Bristol's request to appoint impartial judges to hear his case on the 13th of June, and on the 14th the Commons prepared yet another remonstrance against Buckingham, Charles's head finally exploded. He instructed Coventry to dissolve Parliament. The Lords begged him not to, but he was implacable. The wound is not from your House, but the House of Commons. Parliament was dissolved and sent home. The Subsidies Bill, of course, was lost. What then has just happened here? Broadly, you might take two different tracks. One argument has it that this train smash was indeed caused by a bunch of turbulent lawyers and troublemakers. That the Commons were guilty of a complete lack of realism, failing again to properly fund the policy which they had demanded after all. The problem might be that their focus was just different to that of the King's. While Charles was focused on a national strategy and foreign policy, they were focused on the needs of their constituents and representing them. And there, they saw a deep suspicion of Buckingham and the court and a deep reluctance to pay these taxes. It is at the heart a lack of willingness to look at the true costs of their desires in the face. And despite a deep commitment to Parliament on Charles's part, he keeps coming back to it after all, he was simply getting nowhere against the intransigence of the commons. And I have to say I have some sympathy with this point of view. Poor Charles, desperately trying to follow through on a strategy that at very least was agreed in principle and not given the tools he needed to do the job. But there is another point of view. The commons had twice voted money and look what had happened. It had been wasted in Count Mansfield and a disastrous rain on Cardiz. And there were destitute sailors all over the place. They were forbidden from discussing how the war was conducted, nonetheless. Meanwhile, all they could see was no accountability. A royal favourite whose wealth and royal reward was seemingly limitless and immune to the judgement of actual achievement. A bit like handing out vast bonuses to water company bosses when their companies continually spew out millions of tonnes of raw sewage into our rivers and beaches. Who was to be accountable? Charles made it abundantly clear that they had but one choice in his view. He was not prepared to discuss the whys and wherefores. The very idea of questioning how he and his government spent the money was an outrage and an intrusion on royal prerogative. With his high view of his prerogative and low view of Parliament's prerogative, he refused to play a game that was old and well understood, responding to grievances in return for parliamentary subsidies mutual back-scratching. But he couldn't bear to lower himself to such a thing. It was beneath his dignity. Charles does seem to have been committed to Parliament. After all, under his father and the first two years of his reign, he'd already been involved in three of them. But I am tempted to agree with a French ambassador who remarked that Charles's vision of the institution was a parlement à sa mode. Parliament in his own image. Parliament as he wished it. The price he demanded of the Commons for doing business was simply to adopt his view and perspective. If they did not, he did not appear to be able to view this as a genuine difference of opinion that needed investigation and consideration. It was simply an excuse for troublemaking and disloyalty. Well, he pays you paid money. Frustration on both sides, but another parliament bites the dust in the words of Freddie. Now look, the stuff about lawyers last week was a bit of a nightmare because it led me into all kinds of discretions and I went over length as per normal. But I do try to keep things under control, so I kicked the word of the week to this episode. Nonetheless, I've now gone over length on this one. Mm. But can I briefly inflict a bit of petty fogging on you? I mean, this episode has been an episode of digressions, so would it hurt to have one more? Let us call it a word of the week and the word... Be pettyfogging. The word has two elements. Petty, as I'm sure you will know, is described from the Norman French, petit or petit or small, rendered by the English as petty. Such as in the area of London called Petty France, where buying a house these days would require an amount of money that was far from petty and might indeed be better described as pretty considerable. Anyway, the area was traditionally called Petty France because of a community of Huguenots, although. They were called that rather early, so it may just be that they were French. Anyway, petty, from the French for small, so coming to mean also of lesser or secondary importance, or junior, such as a petty officer in the Navy, for example. Now, the second element of fogging, petty fogging, is even more interesting. You may have come across the enormously wealthy German merchant family, the Foggers, who dominated the European banking world of the 15th and 16th century. Jakob Fogger, who lived at their height, has been estimated to have controlled two percent of the entire GDP of Christendom, today's equivalent of 40 billion dollars, which is a pretty penny rather than a petty penny. Therein apparently lies the origin of fogging. Fogger, an intermediary, a middleman originally. It also gets used in other European languages. So, apparently, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the Dutch had Fokker. Dutch always sounds rude, don't shout at me. There's a Douglas Bader joke that plays on that, isn't there, about the Fokker-Wolf aeroplane in the Second World War. Shall I tell it? Maybe not. Anyway, Dutch Fokker, a monopolist, or more insultingly, a moneybags after Jakob Fokker. In Germany, Luther, who was a notorious potty mouth, by the way, as was St Thomas More, interestingly, uses the word Fokker in... 1520 to denote a corrupt dealer, merchant, or financier, such as maybe the foggers were assumed to be. Spanish Foucault, French, Fouqueur for a rich man, who elbow, the equation of fogger with fogging. Anyway, in English the etymology develops in the 16th century in a slightly differently, although also with a negative sense. So a fogger becomes a word for a low-level legal practitioner. Sometimes seems to be a professional term, but more usually, once again, with very negative connotations. So a lawyer who engages in petty quibbling employs dubious or underhand legal practices who abuses the law. No one is quite sure why it gets used differently in English. Maybe just because we're part of life's rich tapestry, or maybe because the word sounds a bit like fog. So, you know, purposefully complicating and obscuring the issues so the lawyers could charge more fees. So there you go. Petty fogging coming from Petty and the Jacob Fugger family of intermediaries. That's it everyone. Thank you for listening for your reviews and contributions. I'd love to read them and respond. I'll be back in two weeks time for the continuing story of the struggle between commons and king to find middle ground. Until that time, good luck and have a great fortnight.